Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Fire Music is a feature documentary that tells the exciting story behind the free jazz movement. This incredible music documentary focuses on a new form of jazz that began in the 1950s. This new jazz was separate from the happy sounding commercial jazz music that made jazz a well-known musical genre all over the world. Free jazz was angrier and more emotional because the music reflected the turbulent times. The musicians behind the free jazz sound were ignored by mainstream media. As a result, they created their own subculture the film is called fire music and it is just a wonderful documentary film it is about a part of the musical spectrum that you may not know much about and i that's something you need to change because there are so many amazing musicians who are a part of it names that we know very well now but were for many years basically in the shadows we're joined today by the director of the documentary film fire music and that would be Tom Sergal. What prompted you to move forward with this particular documentary film? I imagine it's something that had been kind of percolating with you for a little while. What, what was the what was the impetus for this? I just thought it was uh, my civic duty, really, to uh, chronicle the, the great pioneers of this movement. And it had been uh, cinematically unchronicled. And I felt like it was time these guys get their historical due. So that was really my motivation. Uh, of course, much has been said about Ken Burns' rather exhaustive study of the of the milieu of jazz, which uh, was actually a pretty good movie, except for the part where he just barely even mentions free jazz. And um, I half jokingly refer to my project as the parts that were left out of the Ken Burns documentary. But uh, <laughs> that that was a, a glaring omission, and that that was uh, uh, something I, I needed to correct. So that maybe that's part of my motivation. I I want to explore that in a minute. I do want to get to that because there seems to be such a resistance to to free jazz and to the artists who were responsible for creating it. But let's go back a little bit and sort of describe the time and place that we began to see the music emerge. I mean, we can go back further into the history of jazz, but I just want to kind of focus on this particular era of jazz and music in general and why why it came to be well you know there was an explosion of innovation at that time we're talking about you know 1959 to the 60s and 70s and obviously it very much mirrored the turbulent times in which the music was being played we're talking about you know the burgeoning civil rights movement which of course metamorphosed into the black militant movement the anti-war movement uh there was a lot of rejection of just basic american values and a radical art form like this was was uh, very much in keeping with the times. I also think, just as an outside observer, that there was also that the arts themselves were beginning to expand their their palette. We had the beatniks or the beats. We had different kinds of um, theater was beginning to kind of widen out. And film, we were beginning to see the of movements like the John Cassavetes in real independent filmmaking right. and a lot more um a lot more European directors were finding their their films were finding their way to America, which was another way of telling us the same 
basically the same right. story. So I think, I mean, is that fair to say that there's sort of convergence of cultures that were happening at, at during that period of time as well? Uh, yeah, there was there was a general eschewing of, of traditional forms. Uh, uh, definitely the French New Wave and the neo-realists in, in Europe in terms of cinema were definitely innovating and uh, the abstract expressionists. You, you can make a lot of correlatives between free jazz and uh, abstract expressionism, just the abandoning of, of form altogether and of realistic depiction and uh, the way the, the avant-garde uh, did away with, uh, you know, strict timekeeping and embraced polytonality and collective improvisation. These were uh, new radical techniques that uh, really hadn't been introduced. In the film, we see so many amazing musicians, Ornette Coleman, John Coltrane, Cecil Taylor, Sun Ra, Eric Dolphy. There's so many, Carla Bly. I mean, it's just really rich with these amazing musicians who we now know a lot more. We've heard their music. Was that the case at the time? It's, and and is there some one or two or a few people that were that that birthed this particular form of music, or is, did it just sort of explode across the sort of the musical spectrum? I think a little of both. I I think you definitely had two major architects in Cecil Taylor and uh, Ornette Coleman, who I think both released their first albums in the same year in 1959. What they were doing was was very individualistic. Their musics really don't resemble each other, but they were uh, definitely the most radical innovators of, of at that stage. But people said Sam Rivers was introducing a new sound in New England at that time. And certainly uh, Ornette Coleman's contemporaries in Los Angeles, Bobby Bradford and John Carter were, were definitely uh, making radical strides. So it's hard to say who invented what, but definitely the two guys who enjoyed the most success and probably had the most influence were Cecil Taylor and Ornette Coleman. I believe you said, uh, was it Bobby Rivers? B Bobby Bradford. I'm sorry, Barbie, Bobby Bradford. Was he West Coast or was there a, was was there a geographical kind of uh, component to West this? Was it New York or, or go ahead. Well, that's interesting uh, because, well, Bobby is actually from uh, Fort Worth, which is where uh, Ornette Coleman was from. But they actually hooked up in Los Angeles. They were both transplants. And then Ornette made the uh, move to New York. And that's where he really started to enjoy success as, as it is today. New York is the uh, cultural epicenter and really gets a lot more uh, media attention. And, uh, you know, his contemporaries in Los Angeles, uh, most significantly uh, John Carter and Bobby Bradford, did not uh, garner the same kind of uh, media attention as Ornette did. Eric Dolphy was also part of that scene, but as it was a revelation to me is that he was uh, more conventional, sort of a hard, hard bopper. And it wasn't until he moved to New York that he started transitioning into playing this more radical brand of music. And I make the point is that what became the New York scene was really just a, a conglomerate of people from all over the country who, who migrated to New York and fed off each other's uh, music and there was a kind of uh, symbiosis. They were very much prodding each other on in terms of the radical strides they were making. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the resistance. The I don't know. You can characterize it better than I can. Uh, I, don't, I don't. I wouldn't say anger about the music, but there was certainly a a, a fair amount of a backlash regarding the music. How would you? Well, anger is accurate. <laughs> anger is accurate. Okay, uh, so. Uh, just 
I mean, how did that manifest itself in terms of the, the musicians who were embarking on this journey in free jazz? You know, it manifested itself in very pragmatic ways. For one thing, they were banned from playing all the uh, jazz venues. The clubs weren't having them. They had to find, you know, alternative outlets in which to have their music heard. They had to play in cafes and uh, community centers and churches. And ultimately in the 1970s, they embarked on what was known as the loft jazz scene, where they just converted their own living spaces into uh, performance outlets. So it was very much about a people who were rejected by the mainstream and uh, had to invent a sort of alternative subculture in which to get their music heard. I do want to remind our listeners, we're, we're speaking with the director, Tom Sergal, and he is a uh, director of the film called uh, Fire Music. It will be opening here in Los Angeles at the Lemley Glendale on September 17th. You should seek this out. If you care about music, if you care about history has treated certain artists over the over the last however many thousands of years this is certainly a, a documentary that goes into that that you see not only the you hear the music but also you get a understanding of what these musicians were going through and why why they embarked on this particular journey into the world of music um i mentioned I didn't mention this earlier, but you mentioned 1959 is kind of a seminal year in the development of free jazz. That also happens to be some historic uh, analysis of the United States, and it's widely considered to be the absolute pinnacle of American society was 1959, sort of our, mm -hmm. our, our reach around the world in terms of politics and culture and military and, and influence was, was supposedly 1959 was the seminal year in American history. So mm. I don't know if that's apropos of anything, but I just mm. find it interesting. Um, we we now know today, because we're on, here we are 60, 70 years later now, uh, we have an understanding of this music in many ways has been embraced and it's been expanded upon. You mentioned Ornette Coleman earlier. There are others, Eric Dolphy and others. Was there a particular artist or artists who sort of broke through first and then allowed a lot of these other musicians to be heard? Uh, yeah, I definitely think Ornette Coleman and Cecil Taylor, the architects of, of what, was, was, what was to come. There are a, a lot of these uh, musicians are no longer with us. I, I wasn't familiar enough with Eric uh, Dolphy's life to know that he was, it ended far too soon. And it was a, it's, there's, there's a lot in the film, by the way, about these people's lives, as I said earlier, mm -hmm. but uh, that was one that um, it felt like he was uh, one of those very gifted musicians. Um, do you have a, do you gravitate towards any, any particular musicians in your sort of how you came in to this world or is there, who do you look to and listen to? I mean, I like them all, but you know, I want to make the point that this is jazz and it's all part of the uh, jazz continuum. And it's, it's not uh, the avant-garde did not reject what all the music preceded them. And I make the point that they were very much coming out of bebop and bebop was the radical innovative music of its time. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I didn't, I was initially asked, when did you get into free jazz? And it's like, I got into free jazz when I got into jazz, which yeah. is, you know, when I was 13 years old, I heard a particularly impassioned interview with uh, Rasan Roland Kirk, who was then leading the Jazz and People's Party, where they were the, 
uh, storm uh, local talk shows in the New York area demanding more jazz on the airwaves. So uh, that was my initial introduction to it. And uh, uh, as I said, it's, it's, it's all just jazz. You know, yeah. jazz is a four letter word in some circles. But uh, <laughs> there's one particular artist who seemed to get on board early in terms of making sure that these musicians had an opportunity to be heard. And that would be John Coltrane. He seemed to really be a early, early adopter. Well, actually, John Coltrane is, you know, a fascinating study because uh, he really uh, ascended to fame first with the Miles Davis band, and then he embarked on his solo career. And he's the most illustrious artist in recorded jazz history. He sold more records than anybody, maybe the possible exception of Miles Davis. And at the height of his success, he really transitioned into playing this avant-garde and was embracing music of, of individuals half his age and very much aligned himself and started really playing a whole different sound. Uh, I, I, I can't think of a cultural precedent I, where someone just completely embraced the new to the degree that he did. And he was a kind of patron saint of the movement. He got Albert Eiler and Archie Shep and Marion Brown signed to major labels. He did more probably to uh, turn the public at large onto the mus- music than anyone else in history. Yeah, that was a really fascinating part of the film. Uh, I, I mean, I so appreciate John Coltrane for a lot of reasons, but you're right. He would be the kind of person, from based on his music, to be open and willing to um, embark on his own particular music journey in that regard. Are there people... Again, I I feel like I keep butting up against what you just said earlier, which is this mm. is just jazz. Yeah. I, I I I feel like I'm sort of segregating it in an inadvertently, but for the sake yeah. of our conversation, are sure. there people who are kind of keepers of this particular style? And I know there are many many musicians out there who are doing this this sound, if you will. Right. And one thing before you answer the question, the one thing that I came away from in watching the film was how emotionally um, infused this music is, how, mm-hmm. how much it is about a feeling that you can take away from what the music is. Is that a fair assessment of that? Oh, absolutely. It's a very visceral form. It, it's uh, very emotive. Uh, at the same time, as I said, it is not one thing. It's also very cerebral taps into a lot of aspects of the human condition, you know, uh, yeah. uh, you know, John Coltrane, a lot of people dubbed some of his later work as angry. I remember reading an interview with Frank Kofsky, who kept saying, so train, you're really giving voice to the, uh, black militant sentiments of the time. And he just kept saying, no, man, it's all about love and peace, you know, but uh, <laughs> maybe to the uninitiated, uh, it didn't sound like it, but for, for train, he was, uh, transmitting, you know, the, the complexity that is the human condition. Is there someone that, in your opinion, is today's version or musicians, maybe or one or two, uh, who are in this, that you like, that you celebrate in terms I of... I mean, there's a whole new generation of players. And I, as I said earlier, they can wait another 50 years until somebody makes a movie about them. So I'm just going <laughs> to emphasize, I'm just going to emphasize, you know, 16 of the artists, died in the course of making this movie oh uh, wow yeah wow. including quite recently uh sonny simmons and burton green two of the great great uh contributors to the to the milieu i would i i just emphasize please yeah. go out and see the artists who i highlight who are still with <laughs> us with Rodada, leo smith evan parker peter Brotsman, barry guy paul litton uh 
Jesus, I can't remember who else is alive. And Carla Blay. Yes. Uh, yes. You know, uh, they, they, these people are, are still at the height of their powers and should be appreciated as such. And, and I encourage everyone to buy their records. Uh, uh, obviously, in this post-pandemic era, it's harder to see. But when they are playing, please, please go and, and, and support this movement. Thank you. Thank you for that. I thank you for indulging me. I, you're absolutely right. See these men and women do what they do so well. And as that, that is create music. So we're all very fortunate for for their contributions to our lives. And I want to thank you oh, thank so much you. for your for the film Fire Music and um, for your time here today, Tom Sergal. Thank you so right, very thank much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.